according to His promise. We are looking for new heavens and a new earth in which righteousness dwells. Therefore, beloved, since you look for these things, be diligent to be found by Him in peace, spotless and blameless, and grow in the grace and knowledge of our Lord and Savior Jesus Christ. Our growth comes through the Scriptures. Join me in John 14. John chapter 14. We are dealing with uh, episode 23. The last speech to the apostles and intercessory prayer. It is um, the content of chapters 14 through 17 of the Gospel of John. Uh, between episodes, well, we've had several now that all are generally considered the upper room discourse. We're dealing with the upper room and the walk to Gethsemane discourse. Uh, at the end of chapter 14, you'll notice verse 31, he says, uh, get up, let us go from here. And uh, we believe that they are then walking from the upper room um, to the garden uh, throughout the process of chapters 15, 16, and 17. And it's not until uh, chapter 18 then, when Jesus had spoken these words, he went forth with his disciples over the ravine of the Kidron, where there was a garden in which he entered with his disciples. So in between, the, uh, in between 14.31 and 18.1, in between the statement, get up, let us go from here. And uh, when Jesus had spoken these words, he went forth with his disciples. I think it's best to understand that the uh, content of 15, 16, and 17 were all spoken uh, somewhere in route, somewhere between the upper room and the garden, walking uh, as they were making their way uh, out of uh, Jerusalem to the, uh, the garden where he would be arrested. All right. But for today, we're still dealing with John 14, verses 1 through 6, and uh, dealing with the doctrine of the rapture, the introductory material here. Before we begin, let's take a moment for silent prayer and make sure we are filled with the Holy Spirit, that we are humble under the authority of God's Word. Shall we pray? Most gracious Heavenly Father, we thank you for the truth of your word and the uh, obedience that uh, brothers and sisters here today have demonstrated. Father, it's your will for us to be here today. It's your will for us to present ourselves before you, workmen needing not to be ashamed, rightly dividing the word of truth. It's your will for us to study to show ourselves approved. It's your will for us to, to uh, be equipped for the work of service. And Father, uh, I just rejoice that on this day we have brothers and sisters obedient to your will for their life. I ask that you would reward that obedience. I ask, Father, that you would open the eyes of our understanding and give us ears to hear. I pray that our assembly today would be for the better and not for the worse. And I thank you, Father, in Jesus Christ's name. Amen. All righty. Do not let your heart be troubled. Believe in God. Believe also in me. In my Father's house are many dwelling places. If it were not so, I would have told you, for I go to prepare a place for you. If I go and prepare a place for you, I will come again and receive you to myself, that where I am, there you may be also, and you know the way where I am going. Thomas said to him, Lord, we do not know where you are going. How do we know the way through me? All right. Now, as background for this, it's important that we understand how chapter 13 comes to an end. The points of study from John 13, verses 31 through 38, should be reviewed before proceeding. Uh, we are, uh, we've been 
a few lessons away from this because we uh, are, are doing a harmony of the Gospels and we are uh, putting together Matthew, Mark, Luke, and John and we're not just doing a study on the Gospel of John where we're going straight from chapter 13 straight into chapter 14. This is the purpose for Paul's uh, for John's development here. We want to uh, not lose that, that uh, context or that uh, chain of thought. It's going to be, if, if you don't pay attention to it, then I think there's room for confusion in these chapters and a failure to recognize that this, this section of the Gospel of John pertains to the church. And so we want to be very cautious and understand the context as John wrote this some 50 years after the events, uh, 50 years after the church begins. All right. And so three real things that we pick up on this. Um, first of all... Um, we're dealing with immediate glory. We're dealing with the obedience of Jesus Christ to the will of God the Father. And when you look at verses 31 and 32, with the departure of Judas Iscariot, Judas goes out, he receives the morsel immediately. Uh, he went out and it was night. Therefore, when he had gone out, Jesus said, now. Jesus said, now. And you connect the now to the when he had gone out. Grammatically, you, you connect those together. Doctrinally, you connect those together. Now is the Son of Man glorified, and God is glorified in Him. We have the glory of Jesus Christ being obedient to the will of God the Father, obedient to a plan that has been put into effect since the foundation of the world. Jesus is the Lamb of God slain from the foundation of the world. And so when we look at this in verse 31 of John 13, we recognize that we have a hinge. We have a transition. We have something new that is coming about. Now is the Son of Man glorified and God is glorified in Him. And if God is glorified in Him, God will also glorify Him in Himself and will glorify Him immediately. We have an interaction between the Father and the Son here in these verses. An interaction that is... That is um, reciprocal it goes both ways jesus christ is glorified in the father but god the father is glorified in christ in the son and so we have concepts here that are just beginning to be introduced glimmers of things beginning to be introduced in this final discourse that he gives his disciples things that they're not going to understand right away they're not going to understand for a long time in fact, the full depth of this can't be understood until mystery doctrine is unveiled. In particular, the book of Ephesians has to unveil, uh, and Colossians and the, the New Testament has to unveil the uh, positional truth of what the, what the church is. How are we a body in Christ? And as soon as we start to embrace in Christ, in Christo, we start to really have the full doctrine of what it means to be royal family of God. Brothers and sisters, neither Jew nor Gentile, but one body in Christ. And to, to fully appreciate in Christ, only then can we come back to John 13 and go, oh wow, look at this. God the Father is going to be glorified in Christ. Okay? In Christ. And so we see the role of the church that's going to play in this. All right, Gina? The role of the church will be applied in this. Uh, in the fact that now uh, we are Christ on this earth, are we not? Christ in you, the hope of glory. Christ indwells each one of us. We're going to see this throughout, not only chapter 14, chapter 15, where we bear much fruit. Chapter 16, as the, as the Holy Spirit comes. Chapter 17, in the high priestly prayer. It's all about brothers and sisters in Christ abiding both in the Son and in the Father. And hopefully this will, uh, this will come out. So 
Um, the obedience, and this was subpoint A in the outline, the obedience of Jesus Christ to the will of God the Father establishes the glorification of the Son of Man and the glorification of God the Father in Christ. And, and it's a huge concept that none, none of that was even possible to be revealed in the Old Testament. All right, so we see it here. It's going to come back again in John 14, 13. Notice with me down in verse 13. We'll expand upon this more. But he says, whatever you ask in my name, that, I, that will I do so that the Father may be glorified in the Son. All right, moving forward. He's preparing them for how are they going to operate without, having, without walking with Christ. Because he's not going to be here. He's going to be in heaven. All right. The secret is they still are going to walk with Christ. They're just going to walk with Christ in a spiritual way. They're going to walk with Christ in a spiritual reality while he's seated at the Father's right hand. They are still going to walk with Christ. And so we, we see uh, these references here. Uh, when we get back to John chapter 17, we're going to see, uh, I glorified you on the earth, having accomplished the work which you have given me to do. That was the purpose for his life. That's the purpose for our life. We're here to glorify Christ, to glorify the Father, to please Christ, to please the Father. This is uh, what we do in the church age. 1 Peter 4.11 and especially Philippians 2.9-11. 1 Peter 4.11. So we see that this, uh, this isn't just in the Gospels. This comes out in New Testament development. This is why I say... Once mystery doctrine is unveiled, once we have the hindsight we have in uh, Paul's writings, in Peter's writings, then we understand we go back to the Gospel of John because John had that as well before he wrote his Gospel. So 1 Peter chapter 4, why do we use our gifts? Why do we have spiritual gifts? To impress people with, gee whiz, look what we can do? No. As each has received a special gift, employed in serving one another as good stewards of the manifold grace of God. Manifold grace, multiplied grace, grace upon grace that we have in Jesus Christ. Whoever speaks is to do so as one who is speaking the utterances of God. Whoever serves is to do so as one who is serving by the strength that God supplies. And I think we, I, I anyway, I can freely confess this, that's where I typically stop reading when I'm reading verse 11. Because when I approach this, I'm approaching it in teaching spiritual gifts or teaching a contrast between he who speaks or he who serves and showing the, the breakdown there. Well, let's go ahead and finish the rest of the verse. It says, so that, it's the purpose clause, in using our gifts, operating in the church age as the body of Christ, so that in all things God may be glorified through Jesus Christ. You want to give God the glory? Use your gift and bless brothers and sisters in the local church. You will glorify Jesus Christ. You will glorify God the Father in Jesus Christ by using your gift and edifying brothers and sisters in this lampstand. It's, it's plain and simple. There it is. To whom belongs the glory and the dominion forever and ever. And don't think that you've got to wait till we get to heaven to start doing this. Start doing this right here, right now. Philippians 2, verses 9 through 11. Another passage we stop short on because we emphasize the... Uh, we put the emphasis on the humility portion of this chapter. And uh, that uh, is a, it's not all there is to say on that. It builds on that. Sure, you got the humility here in, in uh, 1 through 8. 
or 5 through 8. Have this attitude in yourselves, which was also in Christ Jesus. All right, I get that. He humbled himself. I humble myself, or I'm supposed to. I get that. But then what does this result in? And it says, uh, because he humbled himself by becoming obedient to the point of death, even death on a cross. Notice now, verses 9 through 11. For this reason also God highly exalted him and bestowed on him the name which is above every name. Now notice it's for this reason. If Jesus Christ had not been victorious in Gethsemane, if he had not been victorious this night in which he was betrayed, if he had not been victorious when he hands the sop to Judas and says, what you do, do quickly. If he had not been victorious on the cross accepting God's wrath, if he had not been victorious, he would not be receiving this glory. Now, some people dispute that. But if they want to debate with me, they're going to end up with a very short debate because I'm going to just point them to this verse and say, you know, debate this verse. Because this verse says, for this reason also. It's causative. It's, 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 the, um, it's the rationale behind God's decision to highly exalt Him and bestow on Him the name which is above every name. So that at the name of Jesus, every knee will bow of those who are in heaven and on earth and under the earth. Notice that every tongue will confess that Jesus Christ is Lord. But the verse doesn't stop there. It's to the glory of God the Father. To the glory of God the Father. And we discuss, of course, that the grace eternal plan of God of the ages is for the eternal and maximum glory of Jesus Christ. But when that's accomplished, whose credit is that? <laughs> when the Omega arrives, when the Omega arrives and Jesus Christ has received all glory, honor, power, dominion, who gets the glory for achieving that? Ultimately, this was the Father's plan. It's God the Father's plan. And when He brings it about, it's ultimately to His glory. You understand. And so that's why it's both. It's the glory of the Son, the glory of the Father. It's mutual. The Father loves the Son. The Son loves the Father. Each one of them spotlights the other. The Holy Spirit spotlights them both. All right. And we need to, we need to identify with this. And this is how we do this. So then, my beloved, just as you have always obeyed, continuing on, I didn't... I stopped the reference on the board to verse 11, but when you notice 12 and 13, it's an extension of that. Work out your salvation with fear and trembling. For it is God who is at work in you with the willing to work for His good pleasure. What does that mean? Humble yourself and give glory to the Father in Christ. All right? That's why we're here. That's why we're here. We use our gifts. We study to show ourselves approved. We're here uh, in this pattern here that Jesus Christ established on the night in which He was betrayed. All right. That's what's introduced in John 13. And we have to understand that the disciples are going to be very bewildered about all of this. They're not going to understand all this. Their heads are going to be spinning. They're still trying to come to grips with, he's going to die. <laughs> right? So all the things after that about the Holy Spirit coming and the rapture and all this other stuff, they are not going to chew it all today. It's going to be years coming to come back to this message. Secondly, immediate glory to the Father and the Son. Immediate glory to God the Father and God the Son transpires when the Son departs to be with the Father and when those in Christ await their following. They await their following. This also is new. I'm going to stress this repeatedly as we teach the rapture in, in John 14. 
immediate glory to God the Father and God the Son transpires when the Son of God departs to be with the Father. And when those in Christ await their following the Son to the Father in heaven. This, is, again, is part of John 13. You've got to keep it in your, in your context or you're going to fail to identify with what he's saying in John 14. Notice verse 33 and verse 36. Put these together. Little children, I'm with you a little while longer. You will seek me. And as I said to the Jews now, I also say to you, where I am going, you cannot come. And we told the Jews that because they were unbelievers. He's going to heaven. They're never going to get to heaven. But now he's telling Peter and these guys, Peter, Andrew, James, and John, and you know all 11 of the ones that are left, not Judas, but the 11 that are left, they're all saved. Why does he tell them that they can't come either? Well, they're believers. Well, you look down to verse 36, when Peter says, Lord, where are you going? You know, what I love, I love this. We're going to see this. Peter has questions. Philip has questions. Thomas has questions. Judas, not Iscariot, has questions. Okay? That's in uh, 14.22. And uh, all throughout this, this walk from the upper room to the garden, question after question after question, you just know their heads are spinning and they, they want to know more and he gives them more and they are not coming to grips with any of it. See? All right. And so uh, Peter says, Lord, where are you going? He says, where I go now, you cannot, you cannot follow me now, but you will follow later. You will follow later. And so what he's hinting at, what he's preparing them for is a, is a uh, time whereby believers are going to be walking this earth and ministering and serving and growing and doing everything and waiting to be rejoined to Christ when we die. Or when we're, when we're raptured and when we depart planet Earth. That we are, we are serving a Lord who's coming someday. And if we, if we die prior to His return, well then we're going to go to Him. Okay? And this is new. This is new. What did an Old Testament believer look forward to, to dying? An Old Testament believer. Dave, take David. Was he looking forward to going to heaven when he died? You say, hey, I'm a believer in Jesus Christ. I'm going to go to heaven when I die. Absent from the body is to be at home with the Lord. No, those are church age New Testament passages. An Old Testament believer would, be, would descend to Sheol and be gathered to his fathers. Not to the Lord. Gathered to his fathers. And what are they doing down there? Is it a great big Sheol family reunion kind of a thing? It is. <laughs> All right. And Lazarus was very delighted to, to hug, you know, Father Abraham. Okay. That's what they had to look forward to. But now Jesus is introducing something entirely different. He's going to go to heaven. And they're not going to die and be gathered to their fathers. They're going to follow him to heaven. This is unique to the church. This is brand new stuff. And it's just now being introduced in this upper room discourse. After the traitor goes out. After the unbeliever goes. This is a message for believers only. Specifically, church age believers only. 
So immediate glory to God the Father and God the Son transpires when the Son departs to be with the Father and when those in Christ await their following the Son to the Father. This is our dispensation. Everything we do now has immediate glory. Immediate glory. There's immediate glory. We, we talked about this when we taught in chapter 13, when we taught the, the concepts of immediate glory. Israel never looked forward to immediate glory. Israel's glory was always future glory, future glory. The coming Messiah, the coming kingdom, future glory. And, and as far as them glorifying God, that was not, in, in their mind, it was God's glory coming to live in their temple in the Shekinah, right? Or the glory of God coming to reside over the mercy seat or the glory in the... In fact, it was a glory that had to be hidden away behind a veil they were afraid of getting too close to. It was a glory that only the high priest could approach one day a year. So it's hard for us sometimes to put ourselves back in an Old Testament mindset, but I encourage you to try to do more and more of that when you're able to, to maybe appreciate more and more of what we have today. You know, we're not not afraid of approaching God's glory. We embrace God's glory. We draw within the veil that is His flesh. We have immediate glory today. I can glorify Christ today with immediate glory, laying up treasures in heaven today. I'm not waiting for some kingdom to be unveiled. Today I'm glorifying Christ. Immediate glory. The new conditions of immediate glory demand a new commandment. Reciprocal love. The new conditions of immediate glory demand a new commandment. Reciprocal love. He says, a new commandment I give to you that you love one another. This is something new. This wasn't in the Ten Commandments. What is this, Commandment 11? What do we, how do we handle this? Is this, uh, is there 614 stipulations in the Mosaic Code? Does this become 615? What is this? No. Take all 14 of the, of the Mosaic Code and realize every, all of the law of Moses is fulfilled in Christ. Christ is the end of the law to all who believes. Not to abolish it, but to fulfill it. The requirements of the law are lived out in us as we walk according to the glory of Christ. We now have a new commandment. Love one another. Prove to be His disciples. A new commandment I give to you that you love one another even as I have also loved you so that you also love one another. By this, all men will know that you are My disciples if you have love for one another. It's a new commandment. This is church age. This is church age. Was was Israel expected to love one another? They were to love their Lord God and they were to love their neighbor as themselves. But a reciprocal love for one another to testify to the human race as to being a disciple of Jesus Christ, none of that is in the Old Testament. None of that. So new conditions of immediate glory demand a new commandment, namely reciprocal love. Point two in the outline. The dispensations of angels, man, and Israel could never envision a stewardship with immediate glory to the Father and to the Son of Man. They all looked forward to a promised glory. Gentiles looked forward to a promised glory. Jews looked forward to a promised glory. Even the angels looked forward to a promised glory. Angels had a glory, but they looked forward to something that they knew was kept hidden from them. Things into which angels longed to look. They weren't even given real complete glimpses of what that glory was going to be about. They're going to have the eternal glory of servanthood on our behalf. And it's going to be their glory to do so. 
They all look forward to a promised glory. Now, it's important to note, Jesus Christ does not violate the mystery of the church, which is not unveiled until after Pentecost. He delivers this last speech and intercessory prayer to bewildered disciples. There should be no question about that. None of them had a clue. That's why you keep seeing question after question after question in these chapters. That's why you see John standing in the empty tomb looking down at the cloth and only then finally believing, ah, he rose again. He said he was going to. He didn't believe that. Until he stood there and looked at the face cloth in the, uh, in the tomb. He delivered this last speech in intercessory prayer. Elsip. Last speech in intercessory prayer, right? Elsip. He delivered this last speech in intercessory prayer to bewildered disciples who would not comprehend any of it until the unveiled mystery. I might reword that too. Do not comprehend much of it until the unveiled mystery enables them to do so. There is a point where he speaks to them plainly and they go, ah, now you're speaking to us plainly. (laughs) That's in 1629. But very little of what he was telling them, they they were having a hard time coming to grips with a lot of this. And in some ways, this is uh, a neat feature of this gospel. Remember, this is written decades after the Synoptic Gospels. This is written after uh, uh, every other book of the New Testament is complete. Uh, Paul's already dead. Peter's already dead. Uh, we have already every other New Testament book. And uh, by the time John writes his, his five New Testament books. And so we have these statements like in John 2.22, when he was raised from the dead, his disciples remembered that he said this, and they believed the scripture and the word which Jesus had spoken. There were things that they could not until after the resurrection finally put it together and with hindsight believe. Okay? And and I like that. I like the fact that they themselves become um prototypes for really all the church. There's a lot of things that, that we understand because we have the hindsight of the New Testament. And if we'd have been living in the first century with only an Old Testament to work with, we would have been just as clueless or even worse. Okay? I'd have been a Pharisee if I was living in the first century. All right? I don't, you know, I say that confidently, but uh, Lord knows absolutely. Uh, John 12, 16. Here's another statement. These things his disciples did not understand at the first. But when Jesus was glorified, then they remembered that these things were written of him and that he had, uh, they had done these things to him. That's not just when he was raised. That was when he was glorified. This was after the ascension. Oh, then they start to put things together in between ascension and Pentecost. They had 10 days to start cycling some things through there. I think they were talking about a lot of this stuff in that upper room when the Holy Spirit descended at Pentecost and filled them and started to open their minds to New Testament truth. Chapter 14 and verse 26. Verse 25 says, These things I have spoken to you while abiding with you. 
Well, in a face-to-face dwelling relationship. But the Helper, the Holy Spirit, whom the Father will send in my name, He will teach you all things and bring to remembrance all that I said to you. That kind of admits right there that, you know, I've spoken a whole lot of things with you and you're going to forget all about it or you're not going to understand it. It's going to take the Holy Spirit to bring these things to not only your remembrance, but also your understanding. Chapter 16, verses 12 and 13. I have many more things to say to you now, but you cannot bear them now. But when he, the spirit of truth comes, he will guide you into all the truth. There is a full revelation coming up and you, you're not ready for it yet. Mystery doctrine is going to be unveiled to you guys. You're going to be writing, you're going to be adding to the 39 books of the canon of Scripture, which for them was the Hebrew canon, so 22 Hebrew books. All right, you're going to be adding to that. You're going to be adding uh, 27 New Testament books. And you won't write in Hebrew, you'll be writing in Greek. I have many more things to say to you, but you cannot bear them now. But when he, the spirit of truth, comes, he will guide you to all the truth, for he will not speak on his own initiative. But whatever he hears, he will speak. That's very similar to the ministry of Christ, who didn't speak on his own initiative, but what he heard from the Father, so he spoke. And he will disclose to you what is to come. He will glorify me, for he will take up mine and will disclose it to you. All right. Again, it's the glory of the Father and the Son of what gets uh, unveiled here. Now, those are the verses that I put on the screen. I would add to that. um, Just because I mentioned it a few minutes ago, I would add to it the um, statement when there's in the empty tomb in chapter 20. And um, verse 9. There's context around that as well. But... Peter and uh, John have their foot raised to the tomb. Mary Magdalene tells them about it, so they decide to race there straight away. And John's uh, the young, healthy teenager, and Peter's the older man, and and John beats him there. And uh, so Simon Peter also came, following in verse 6, entered the tomb, and he saw the linen wrappings uh, lying there, and the face cloth which had been on his head not lying with the linen wrapping, but rolled up in a place by itself. And, uh, so the other disciple who had first come to the tomb when he entered, and he saw and believed. For as yet they did not understand the Scripture that he must rise again from the dead. What kind of morons are they? Why can't they figure this out? Okay. Well, again, we're, we have a New Testament. And we have the Holy Spirit indwelling us. And we have a, a spiritual insight to things that that, uh, you know, we want to just slap them and say, don't you get it? Can't you understand this? No. They can't and they didn't. Not until they were ready for it. So the disciples went away again to their own homes and Mary still doesn't get it. Mary was standing outside the tomb weeping. And then uh, she thinks she's going to see the gardener and she's uh, all kinds of other things happening here. All right. Point three. The first doctrine, which uniquely... And I took 30 minutes to review what we did two weeks ago. I apologize, but I want to kind of get us back into this mindset. New material now. The first doctrine, which uniquely applies to the church, is the doctrine of the rapture. The first doctrine, which uniquely applies to the church, is the doctrine of the rapture. John 14, verses 1 through 4. And it's interesting to see what does... 
What does Jesus reveal when he tells them, let not your heart be troubled? Is it the doctrine of, of uh, what, what, what doctrine keeps your heart from being troubled? Well, doctrine number one, as far as John 14 goes, is the rapture. And I believe Peter would be in agreement and I believe Paul would be in agreement. When Paul gives his rapture doctrine, he says, therefore, comfort one another with these words. All right. The first doctrine which uniquely applies to the church is the doctrine of the rapture. Didn't apply to Gentiles, didn't apply to Jews, didn't apply to angels. It only applies to a stewardship that has an event coming up where they are going to depart planet Earth all at once in total. Israel never had such a promise or expectation, nor would they. Nor would the Gentiles. But one Gentile had a rapture, Enoch. One Jew had a rapture, Elijah, caught up to heaven without, without um, physical death, foreshadowing what neither Jew nor Gentile in the church, what we have in the church age, the rapture of the church, okay? Foreshadowed in Enoch and Elijah, one Jew, one Gentile. Uh, do not let your heart be troubled. Believe in God, believe also in me. Here we have uh, some interesting uh, grammatical puzzles. I, I don't have any issues with these as imperatives, but the same uh, debate that we have in our Corinthian study comes into play here. We've got a second person plural whereby the uh, indicative endings could be imperative, could be indicative, could be interrogatives, could be questions. Do you believe in God? Believe also in me. Okay. Or, do you believe in God? Do you believe also in me? Or, you believe in God. Do you also believe in me? <laughs> or, do you believe in God? Did I say that already? You believe in me? You can mix and match them either way. You can make them both questions. You can make them both statements. You can make them both commands. Do not let your heart be troubled. Believe in, or you are not letting your heart be troubled. Actually, that one there, I think there's less ambiguity. I think that one there you have to take as a, as a, uh, because of the negative. You have to take that as an imperative, not an indicative. Um, but these others, I think they're commands. Believe in God, believe also in me. Trust what God the Father has promised. Trust me. Not because I promised it, but because I am going to faithfully execute what God the Father has promised. If you have a hard time believing God's going to do what He says, is really, is God a liar? And is God, if God's not a liar, and if Jesus is not a liar, where do you think the breakdown is going to be? Do you believe that Jesus is going to fail to achieve what the Father has for Him to achieve? He already said, I and the Father are one. He already said that He's going to do the Father's will. Not one of them will perish. If you think you can lose your salvation, you have to believe that Jesus is going to disobey the Father. We know Jesus isn't going to disobey the Father. He already went to the cross to prove that. He can do the maximum obedience to God the Father. The idea that He would disobey the Father to lose you, not going to happen. Because He obeyed the Father to save you. It is inconceivable that He would disobey the Father to lose you. Likewise, it's inconceivable that He would disobey the Father to not rapture the church. To not rapture the church. It's the Father's work to provide a bride for His Son. And when the Father's done doing that, He tells His Son, alright, Son, go get your bride. What's the Son going to say? 
No thanks, Father. I'm going to do what Samson did. I, I want this other bride instead. Get her for me. She looks good to me. No. That's the, Samson was a buffoon. Uh, Jesus is going to, you know, you got the power. Isaac didn't even see his bride till she got off the camel and got in the tent. She put the veil on before he even got her off the camel. And he gets her into the tent. Okay? Takes the veil off and evidently liked what he saw. And even if he didn't, this is what the Father provided. Okay? He's not going to be a Jacob. Wake up in the morning and when the sun comes up and go, oh, that's, that's the wrong girl. So, you believe in God. It, it might be best to take that as an indicative. Let not your heart be troubled. Imperative. Command. You believe in God, the Father. Indicative. Believe also in me. Imperative. Could take it that way. Or make all three of them commands. I think the functional difference, it makes no difference. Not as a principle of application for us in the church. We're looking forward to the rapture. That's a faith application. In my Father's house are many dwelling places. Huh. Okay. So what? <laughs> right? Buckingham Palace has a lot of bedrooms too. Do you know how many? Do you care? Will you ever sleep in one? Not likely. <laughs> okay. Now, what keeps this whole thing from being a so what is the fact that we're going there. And we belong to the Father. If it were not so, I would have told you. You know, had the conditions been different, there would have been doctrine already been provided. I would have told you previously. I would have told you previously, had things been different, in other words, if there is no church, if there is no mystery, if there is no, if there is no new relationship with God through faith in Christ, then it would have been different. Jesus would have told them that. If it were not so, I would have told you. See? And I'm gonna, I, I may spend more time on that phrase than you want to hear, just because it interests me. And I think there's doctrine there that gets overlooked. The if it were not so, I would have told you. I would have told you. It's a message he was prepared to give, but didn't. And the reason why he didn't is because it was so. In my Father's house are many dwelling places. It is so. And so there's a different message that has to be given. And it's a message that, that can't be given until this very night, until um, he's permitted to give. I, I don't know that he even understood it before this night. When did Jesus get mystery doctrine unveiled to him? Maybe he's, it's being flowed into him right now as he's speaking it to these guys. All right. And this is part of what I love is that God that omniscience is is more than we give it credit for. Omniscience is bigger than any of us grasp. Because you say, well, God knows everything. Yes, but you don't know the half of everything. Because everything is not only everything that is, but it's also everything that is not but could be. 
It's all the what-nots. It's all of the things that are not, but could be under different conditions, under different circumstances. He knows every reality. He also knows every unreality. Every possible unreality, He knows those as well. If it were not so, I would have told you. I love it when Scripture unveils this for us. He knows all the what-ifs, whether they come true, whether they don't come true. All right. Well, first of all, the rapture, set point A, the rapture doctrine as a faith application in the glorified Father and Son. That's why the Old Testament never could have this doctrine. The Old Testament never had a glorified Father and Son. The rapture doctrine as a faith application in the glorified Father and Son keeps the church member's heart from being troubled. It keeps your heart from being troubled. Let not your heart be troubled. That's the imperative. How do you do that? The rest of the verse. The rest of the paragraph. The context. Believe in the Father. Believe in the Son. It's a faith application in the glorified Father and Son. It's the anticipation that Jesus Christ is even now preparing our eternal dwelling. Even as the Father prepares His bride. When the Father is done with His preparations and the Son is done with His preparations... You think the Father's going to delay? <laughs> Not once the bride is complete. When the bride is complete and perfect, whatever it is, pick a number, doesn't matter. What if, what if, the, uh, the, uh, what if the bride of Christ is designed by God the Father to be a billion born-again believers? Have we reached that already? There's seven billion people on the planet. Probably half of all the people that have ever been on the planet. But just in the, in the um, 2,000 years since Pentecost, how many, how many born-again believers have there been? We don't know. God's in charge of that. Much of the bride's already in heaven. Much of the bride is still here on earth. Um, but whatever the number is, there's an X number of believers that's going to finish the bride. Now, when that X is finished, when that person gets saved, is he going to wait a month after that? A week after that? A day after that? How long is the father going to wait to sound the trumpet for the son to shout for, to go get the bride? I don't think it can be that long. I think it's a split second. You know, if, he's, if, if the bride is complete with X number... And then he delays a month. Well, what if somebody else gets saved after that? <laughs> Are they part of the bride? They're, they're past the perfect number. Would they be a believer left behind on earth when the trumpet sounds? Not No. From Pentecost to rapture, when you're saved, you're in Christ. See, that's why I think that's a split second. I think it's a bare moment. When that faith in Christ is placed, that the trumpet sounds. Okay. But it is a faith application in the glorified Father and Son. I'm believing in the Father. I'm believing in the Son. And He's going to take me home. And it could be today. So I'm not worried about uh, the bills stacking up. I could be in heaven today. I'm not worried about this surgery recovery. I could be in heaven today. Uh, you know, my resurrection body doesn't need a little mesh holding a hernia in. All right. 
there's a lot. Of, I'm not worried about the November elections. I could be in heaven today. Or before, yeah, there you go. Or before November. <clears throat> Rapture doctrine. It keeps your heart from being troubled. It also motivates you to godliness. Not only could I be in heaven today, I could be giving an account today. Standing at the beam and giving an account of myself to God. So it's a, it's a goad to uh, holiness and uh, obedience in the Christian way of life. Let not your heart be troubled. Uh, I would relate that again to John uh, to First uh, Thessalonians 4. Comfort one another with these words. Comfort one another with these words. All right. Let me just add, since I didn't put it on the slide, let me add it here. First um, Thessalonians 4. And then um, I think also Second Thessalonians two two, but First Thessalonians four. You got the rapture doctrine. Having trouble flipping pages today. I'm rusty. Ten days out of the pulpit. This is this is horrible. We do not want you to be uninformed, brethren, about those who are asleep, so that you will not grieve as do the rest who have no hope. And he goes on to give the rapture doctrine here. And he says, therefore, comfort one another with these words. Verse 18. It's a comfort doctrine. It ought to be doctrine number one, the first doctrine which uniquely applies to the church. It's number one in John's list of things from 14, 15, 16, and 17 of of, of these chapters of John. If you think about it as the New Testament is being written, what's the first doctrine you teach a brand new believer? I think spirituality and carnality. Law versus grace. So you've got the book of Galatians, all right? What's the second thing you teach a brand new believer? I think the rapture of the church. You've got 1 Thessalonians. You've got 1 Corinthians. And why, you know, is it, is, it, is it an accident that these were the earliest New Testament books written? Paul started with Galatians, then he wrote 1 Thessalonians, then he wrote 2 Thessalonians, then he wrote 1 Corinthians. And we, we have walking by the Holy Spirit and we have a uh, rapture and second advent uh, eschatology. That, that ought to sustain each one of us so we don't lose heart. And then we can move on into using our spiritual gift and edifying brothers and sisters and, and uh, the mystery doctrine of Ephesians and all the, the deeper things that come later. All right. Um, so it's a comfort application. Likewise, uh, in chapter 5 and verse 11, encourage one another. That's 1 Thessalonians 5.11. So 4.18 and 5.11. Encourage one another and build up one another just as you were also doing. And how do you do that? How do we edify one another? Review the rapture doctrine and review the second advent doctrine. And understand one is for us and the other one, uh, we're not worrying about tribulation. We're not worried about the day of the Lord and the wrath that's coming on this world. God has not destined us for wrath, but for obtaining salvation through our Lord Jesus Christ. All right, so that ought to be uh, that ought to be encouraging for us. I think uh, two, uh, Second Timothy, Second Thessalonians two seventeen as well. Comfort and strengthen your hearts in every good work and word. This this whole doctrine is for our comfort. More, inf- more rapture information there in 2 Thessalonians 2.2. 2. The coming of our Lord Jesus Christ and our gathering together to Him. That's what we're dealing with. Our gathering together to Him. That can't be neglected. 
Second Thessalonians 2, 1. We request of you, brethren, with regard to the coming of our Lord Jesus Christ and our episynagogue, our gathering together to Him, that you not be quickly shaken from your composure or disturbed to the effect by message or spirit, to the effect that the day of the Lord has come. Don't ever let anyone damage your rapture doctrine. That's, that's your blessed hope. All right. There's a full impact on this. I, I may explore this in some upcoming classes. There's only two places that Episunagoge shows up, and this is one. Clearly in a rapture context. The other place it shows up is Hebrews 10.25. Hebrews 10.25. And I wonder, join me there, Hebrews 10.25. Let me just give you something to chew on in the coming, uh, coming days. For 10 days I've been sitting in a recliner, feet propped up. Not able to, you know, sit in front of my laptop and study. And so I've been doing a lot of meditation and chewing and praying and different things. No, don't be surprised if maybe I appear a little bit more philosophical in the next week or two. Hopefully I'll come out of it not too long from now. But anyway, um, but wonder about this. Because in Hebrews 10.25, we have... um, About... Drawing near. Uh, Therefore, brethren, since we have a confidence to enter the holy place by the blood of Jesus. Is that physical or spiritual? Spiritual, okay. By a new and living way which He inaugurated for us through the veil that is His flesh. It's a metaphor. We understand it spiritually. Since we have a great priest over the house of God, most of which is in heaven, some of which is still on earth. Let us draw near... Is that physical or spiritual? Uh Uh-huh. Okay, good. Let us draw near with a sincere heart and full assurance of faith, having our hearts sprinkled clean. Is that spiritual or physical? Spiritual. Okay. All throughout this. Uh, Our bodies washed with pure water. Is that physical or spiritual? Does that mean I took a shower this morning? No, it's spiritual. Okay. Let us hold fast the confession of our hope without wavering, for he who promised is faithful. Is it physical or spiritual? Spiritual. I'm holding fast to doctrine. I'm holding it spiritually, right? And let us consider how to stimulate one another to love and good deeds, not forsaking our own assembling together as is the habit of some. Now, this is where everybody turns it to something physical. And it gets preached, and I've done it myself. Every pastor has because, you know, quit skipping church, Right? Not neglecting the, our assembling together is the habit of some, but I think we ought to pay more attention. This is actually unique terminology, epi-synagoge, that's only used twice. What if this is with reference to the rapture? And so let us draw near, this is spiritual, 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 let's keep it all spiritual, not forsaking the rapture doctrine, as is the habit of some. Could you read it that way? Would that not be a doctrine that would, uh, that would assist you in stimulating one another to love and good deeds? Sure it would. Not neglecting the rapture doctrine. Not forsaking the rapture doctrine. Keep that as doctrine number one to stimulate one another to love and good deeds. As is the habit of some, but encouraging one another. 
And all the more as you see the day. What day? The rapture. Drawing near. In fact, if if uh, forsaking, if, if that's not, if that episynagogue in the first part of verse 25 is not the rapture, then we don't have anywhere in this near context, we don't have anywhere that defines what the day is that he's talking about. As you see the day drawing near. What day? The day of the Lord, the day of Christ, the day of God's vengeance, the day of Groundhog Day. What, what day? Okay. As you see the day drawing near. The only thing that defines the day we're talking about drawing near is if you take the episynagogue as rapture. Not forsaking our own assembling together, our episynagogue. Not forsaking rapture doctrine, as is the habit of some, but encouraging one another and all the more as you see the day drawing near. Now, uh, I will likely continue to use this as a don't skip church exhortation. <laughs> there are other don't skip church exhortations. Okay, Seven of them, seven churches in Revelation 2 and 3. He that has an ear, let him hear what the Holy Spirit communicates to the local churches. Seven times over. If you're skipping class, you're defiant of God's will because he's got a message and you're accountable. You're accountable. Not forsaking our own assembling together is the habit of some. Okay? That you can view that physically. And it's consistent with the other passages. And I just think it's maybe deeper than that. We ought to start thinking, you know what? There's more to it than just coming to Bible class. And at the end of the day, it may not be a, an either or. It may be a both and. The passage may be saying both. Quit, quit skipping church and stop neglecting the rapture doctrine. Both are true. Both are going to assist you in stimulating one another to love and good deeds. Alright, so the rapture doctrine uh, keeps your heart from being troubled. Secondly, the third heaven, that's the Father's house, the third heaven presently and already contains Manai Palai. It already contains Manai Palai, many rooms, dwelling places, apartments, condos. I like the term condo. <clears throat> the third heaven, and this is what the term was used for. It's not a mansion. It's not a, it's not a, a, a palatial estate with grounds and whatnot. It's uh, many rooms. Many bedrooms, many uh, condos. Already presently, at the time Jesus is speaking, they're already there. But there's something that's not there. And he says he has to go and prepare it so that it will be there before they get there. The third heaven presently and already contains Manai Palai. Many manai. He says that he doesn't go to prepare a manai for us. He goes to prepare a tapas, a place for us. And why does he switch? Why does he introduce a new term? Why does he use place instead of, uh, instead of uh, manai? Why does he change the terminology? 
Now, the already existing ones, are they just, uh, are they just cluttered and he needs to clean them up a bit? Yeah, are they, are they, are they, they, you know, the last people moved out and it's just, he's, he's got to, you know, put in new carpet and appliances. Okay. Get the apartment ready for the new, the new tenants. No. And in fact, the preparations uh, are construction type uh, preparations. He has to construct and build something that's not already there. And it's not going to be additional palai uh, or additional manai. It's going to be uh, something entirely new. And I believe it will be um, mansions with grounds and property and land and, and so forth. That the promises of, of territory and things of that that Jews and Gentiles don't have. Their uh, land grants and inheritance is earthly. Ours is heavenly. What it does not presently and already contain is a place for Jesus and disciples. Well, why not? Why are they heavenly homeless? Okay. And why, why does the Father have all those empty spots when Old Testament believers aren't even there? They're in shale. They're in Abraham's bosom. Okay, now they're about to get there. He's going to lead captivity captive. When he ascends, he will take paradise with him and then Old Testament believers will start to occupy the, the monopoly that are already there. The monopoly that will be for them to dwell in. They've been there since, uh, since Christ led them there. But there's a place that's not there yet and he has to build it. And it's for you. It's for you. I go to prepare a place for you. Now, who's the you in this passage? Which believers? Yeah, church age believers. The believing 11 disciples that will become the believing 11 apostles that will be the foundation of the church and all the believers afterwards. Okay? Not limited to these 11 guys or 12 if you count Matthias. Not, not just the 12. Okay, um, and I'm at the top of the hour already. Let me uh, let's take a peek down to John 17, and let's recognize that this message is not only for these guys. John 17:20. I do not ask on behalf of these alone. It's not just the twelve, the eleven plus Matthias. But for those also who believe in me through their word. Anybody that gets saved based on apostolic testimony. The gospel of the New Testament. The, the, any church age believer. They can't say church age believer. Mystery had unfolded yet. But he can pray for his twelve. And, uh, and he can pray for those that, that follow them. That uh, all who believe in me through their word, that they may all be one, even as you, Father, are in me and I in you, that they also may be in us. You realize that by virtue of being in Christ, you're in Father. So that the world may believe that you sent me. So what we're dealing with here in this last speech and intercessory prayer is not just for the twelve. It's not just for the twelve. It is normative for the entire dispensation of the church. I go to prepare a place for you. The church needs a heavenly dwelling, unlike the monopoly that are already there. Okay? So chew on that.
The um, Jesus, point C. Well, I'll come back to this next week. Jesus is going to have to go and prepare a place for the bride of Christ. He has to prepare a place for the bride. Different than the place that's, places that are already there. Are we going to live in a manai when we get there? A manai, singular manai. Are we going to live in a manai when we get there? Are we going to have an apartment? Or are we going to have, what are we going to have when we get there? Okay. It's unfortunate that King James rented this mansion in 1611. We've been stuck with mansions ever since. Um, well, we'll deal with it. Father, thank you for your truth. Thy word is truth. Um, thank you for the raptured doctrine. And I pray in the weeks to come that we would chew on this, that we would appreciate it. That, Father, we would be uh, mindful that a lot, of, a lot of brothers and sisters we encounter uh, don't believe this doctrine. They've never been taught it. They don't understand it. Their pastors went to a school that taught that this wasn't true. Their uh, systematic theologies teach that this is not true, that there's not going to be a rapture. With, uh, or they, they blend it with Second Advent. And, and it's just uh, it's, it's tragic, Father that the very uh, blessed hope that we have is, is stripped away from so many believers today. So, Father, uh, open our eyes to where we can comfort one another with these words and encourage one another that we might not neglect the, uh, the episynagogue, the rapture doctrine. I thank you, Father, in Christ's name. Amen.